Welcome to the Paidea Education Podcast, Episode 3, The History of School Reform. In this podcast, Dr. Richard and I talk a lot about our history of school reform, which makes sense for the title, uh, that started back in the 1800s. Our education system has evolved and changed to focus on different issues, changes been happening in our country. Up to today, uh, the current school reform movement that's occurring and probably, arguably, I guess, started back in the 1980s with the uh, Nation at Risk paper that was written uh, during the Reagan administration. So we're going to go through all of that in some detail, talk about where we are today, and really focus a lot on some of the problems uh, with our current perspective as it relates to school reform. Uh, Dr. Richard and I talk a lot about some of the limitations that we see in, in school reform, in the current school reform movement. Uh, we think that it, uh, some other things should be taken into account, and we hope that our discussion will lead to you thinking a little bit about this, maybe cons- making some considerations related to um, how school reform should be happening today. Uh, schools certainly aren't perfect, uh, but the the movement of and the changes that are happening with school reform today uh, we think are a little bit problematic and not really thinking about all of the things that should be taken into consideration. So hopefully, again, it will just trigger some thoughts for you, trigger questions, get you talking about these issues with one another, with us, with anyone else that will listen so that we can all be talking about these issues and hopefully creating some change. That would be nice. Just a few announcements. Um, The November edition of the PAC Florida newsletter will be released shortly. We had a great workshop uh, last week here at at, uh, PAC Florida where we talked about medication myths and misperceptions. So uh, if you didn't get a chance to make it to that workshop, uh, we will hopefully have it posted on YouTube uh, so that you can check it out there. Um, Also, we have another workshop coming up in the middle of December, um, where we will be talking about holiday-related issues. It's going to be called Preparing for the Holidays, uh, where we're going to talk about how to handle some of the stressors often associated with the holidays, how do you deal with family, how do you deal with some of the mood and anxiety-related symptoms that often accompany the holidays as we get so worked up with the approaching season. So, Uh, Stay tuned for that. We don't have a specific date for that yet, only because we're trying to figure out if we're going to have it here at the office or at another location. So stay tuned. We should have that announced and posted on our Facebook pages and on our uh, blog and and practice webpage within the week. Um, Other announcements is that we're growing our Facebook page. Oh, not our Facebook page, our YouTube page. Uh, to include a lot of our podcasts, so you will be able to find our podcasts there. Um, they won't include video yet. Oh, I'm trying to talk Dr. Richard into uh, letting us record ourselves uh, through video as well as audio so that we can post our um, our videos on YouTube uh, for all to listen. Uh, that'll be great. I'm excited about that and hope that you will be too. So, all right, I think that's all the announcements for this week. So sit back, have a listen. Uh, make your voice heard, talk about these things, and contact us if you have any questions, comments, or if you want to uh, join in the discussion. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast.
Welcome to episode three of the Paidea Education Podcast. This is Dr. Bernie. And I'm Dr. Richard. And uh, here we are, number three. Here we go. Here we go. So just a few quick announcements. We're a little bit behind on some of our podcasts for this week. Uh, between all the things that we have going on, we ended up not being able to record our uh, mental breakdown podcast on Friday, as usual. We were in the midst of a wonderful workshop on medication at the time that we typically record the the, the uh, mental breakdown podcast, so we didn't have the opportunity to record that one. So we'll, we'll get that one recorded pretty soon and have it posted um, as soon as we can. Okay. Yeah? That's right. Good workshop on um, Friday on... Um the use of um, medications yeah, for yeah. Um, mood disorders, ADHD, anxiety disorders, and uh, psychotic disorders. Psychotic disorders, yes. Yeah. So, so we, we kind of covered the four broad topics or four broad classes of medications, and I think it went well. It did. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting that one posted. I think I'm going to try to get that video posted up onto YouTube so that people can check it out and, mm-hmm. and if they have questions. Because it's pretty good information as right. far as you know what the medications are for, what they're what they're there for, what we use them for, uh, what to expect with them, all of that, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. So, but that's why we didn't get to record the mental breakdown this week. So, but we'll, we'll make it up we'll to you this week. It'll be back uh, and <laughs> better than ever mm-hmm. once we once we can get that recorded. So, for this podcast, we're talking today about the history of school reform. Now, for those of you who listened to the Mental Breakdown, we did a similar podcast uh, for that uh, several months ago. months ago. It was one of our early podcasts, but we thought that we would redo it here for Paidea because there was a, some information that we wanted to put in the initial podcast that we didn't have in there, and so we figured that this would be a great way to add that extra information, maybe get into a little bit more specifics, and provide you with some of the information important to the idea of school reform, a term that's been thrown around sort of willy-nilly for, for many, many years. Yeah, and we want to talk about school reform because all this business about high-stakes testing and teacher accountability and students being held back, all that comes under the, the heading of uh, school reform. It's all occurring because of school reform. So uh, because these are topics that are very much a part of most of our lives, uh, we thought it important to um, rediscuss, if you will, um, school reform. Right. So I'm looking forward to this. Right. So we're going to start out really, Richard, in, in your domain. Right. And that's the domain of history. Uh, I'm not very good. I, I don't know a lot of history. I, I was never really f- as fascinated. I'm getting better at it, I have to say. I'm getting better at improving my interest in history, but um, but that is your, definitely your domain. That's your area, and, and I always turn to you when, I, when I'm wondering about some of this stuff. So let, let's start with a little bit of a history of what school reform is, uh, where school reform started, what, what it was for, and how it's evolved over the years. Right. Yeah, because we normally think of school reform as something that's, that's just uh, beginning now, that, that what we're doing now is school reform and that it's somehow um, something new. In fact, school reform has been with us since the beginning of our nation. And in fact, the first school reformer was Horace Mann back in uh, the 1830s. He was the uh, secretary, uh, head of the Department of Education 
in Massachusetts, and um, he was uh, what he wanted to do was to develop a school curriculum that would educate citizens to vote. Because remember, we had just uh, the Constitution had recently been signed, and the challenge was how do you educate citizens to vote? So for, this was the experiment in the, right. after uh, after the Revolutionary War. Is uh, you know can a country govern itself without a king? And um, so to do so, we needed an educated citizenry. And Horace Mann developed a curriculum that was designed to do that. That was way back in the 1830s. The next time we see a um, uh, educational reform, school reform, is um, when that wave of immigration came to the United States uh, at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s. These were the workers uh, from uh, mainly European countries um, who flooded into the United States to uh, work in the factories that were built during the Industrial Revolution. And these immigrants came to the United States uh, not knowing the language, not knowing the customs, not knowing the culture. So to enculturate them, to socialize them, to teach them um, English, we built factory-like schools, large factory schools, to, um, to educate and to teach them how to speak English and to teach them how to dress and to teach them hygiene. And so schools were tasked with Americanizing the flood of immigrants that came into the United States at the turn of the um, 20th century. The next time we see schools tasked or asked to um, to um, play this role of um, play this social role was um, to desegregate our schools after World War II. As most of you know, um, a federal court case called Brown versus Board of Education uh, happened in 1954. But the idea was that we had to integrate our society. Well, that's a social problem. How do you integrate a society? Do you do it with residents or do you do it? How do you, how do you integrate? And so we decided, the United States decided that we would have our schools be the place where integration um, was 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 um, was accomplished. And to accomplish it, um, one of the ways we accomplished it was through forced busing, mandatory busing. Right. And so the educational reform is let's throw all kids together um, in school and then schools would become the place where um, kids, uh, where we integrated our society. So um, so the, the, this whole idea of educational reform is not new. It's been with us since the founding of the country. I think that something to to jump in real quick because I think that this is a an important theme and a, an important purpose that we that needs to be highlighted, and that is the educational system. Schools have from the beginning been a vehicle for social change. That's right. That's right. Whatever is happening in society at large, mm-hmm. we tend to or our our, our country has has the tendency to use schools mm-hmm. as the social experiment or the social vehicle for creating what they're hoping to be mm-hmm. global changes in society. That's right. We want to change the culture right. so we ask schools to do it. Right. Right. Whether it's Americanizing, integrating, uh, educating citizens, whatever the task is, we ask schools to accomplish that because that's a captive population. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that what's an important maybe thing that, that doesn't exactly fit with our goal for the, for the podcast today, but I think that it's important that we also sort of 
it mentioned with that comes the maybe some of the explanation for why some of our societal changes happen so slowly. Right. You know, it, it's one thing in the 1960s to talk about integration and, and equality and that those kinds of issues. It's something else to, or, or the other piece to that is, okay, so we're educating children for that in the 1960s. That's not going to create a real social change for another 20 or 30 That's or right. more years as those those children sure. become adults and begin to have the opportunity to change life. And we, we hear that even today mm-hmm. when, you know, uh, you know I, I grew up in the South. And so we hear things, you know, when it comes to uh, if we just want to stick with racism, for example, you know, we have relatives who still hold to some of those uh, racist Idea, right. you know, thoughts Older, and adult relatives, adult right. relatives, mm-hmm. and, and we all we we tend to or, or people tend to excuse them by saying, well, they're just from a different time, different generation. They right. they mm-hmm. weren't educated at the time that right. these societal changes were encouraged, and so those of us who who did go to school after that period of social reform or school reform, where integration was important, we have a very different view of equality than those who went to school before that where they weren't taught that from from early on Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it's important that we recognize that you know using the schools as a vehicle for social change does create change but that's change is a very slow process and takes a generation or two before you start really seeing uh seeing the change happen on a bigger scale Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this, and this this is no exception. The the current round of educational reform is no exception. Um, the educational reforms that we see today were born in the early 1980s during the uh, Reagan administration, and um, there was a, a famous 36 page pamphlet, a 36 page report called "A Nation at Risk," and. Um, a Nation at Risk was, um, was developed by a committee headed by Terrell Bell, who was the Secretary of Education during the Reagan administration. And the, um, the goal of this um, commission was to, um, to um, analyze, to study the uh, American educational system um, because there was a growing concern that the Ameri- that American education was not preparing our children as well as other countries were preparing their children. And the result of that eventually would be that um, our industries, our military, our business, um, everything, all of our other institutions were going to eventually begin to suffer because we had an undereducated population because the schools were not providing an, a rigorous enough education. Right. Okay. So in 1984, we have this pamphlet that comes out and says, we're in very big trouble, and we have to make some major changes, introduce more rigor, and uh, make important improvements in the educational system. The, what we know now, after about 30 years of, um, of uh, 30-year anniversary of, of uh, A Nation at Risk, is that the... The, a Nation at Risk was based on or fostered two ideas. One was fear. Um, the, the, whether it was intended or not, um, a, no, a Nation at Risk uh, 
put everybody on notice, uh, created this atmosphere of fear that we have to do something quickly. We have to improve our school systems as quickly as we can. At the same time, the um, reforms were based on a business model. These were the 1980s, and we had this shift in our country to um, the solution to problems weren't, well, Reagan used to say, uh, government is not the solution, it's the problem. And so that applied to education as well as other institutions. And so um, there is this sort of um, feeling in the country that, or this opinion in the country that, uh, businesses, private enterprise, can do things better than the government. So you have two forces at work. One is fear that we're falling behind, and one is um, um, to adopt a business model based on um, making teachers and students accountable, that somehow we have to make sure that teachers are teaching and that students are learning. So we have fear combined with um, Accountability, right? Okay, and that's that's what's driving um, in the middle 1980s. That's what's driving this process. Okay, fear and accountability, right? And if we think about the, the that time, you know, as that time was building up, of course we were finishing up the the Cold War, and we had this tremendous anxiety about other countries and what the other countries were doing compared to what we were doing. And we had another thing besides the Cold War is we had the uh, Iran hostage crisis. Right. had just ended. It happened in the late 1970s. So it looked like America was vulnerable. Right. You know, here's Iran, takes over our embassy, keeps people captive for a year, and we don't seem to be able to do anything about it. Right. You're right. And, and I think that the something that we, again, looking back with, with, 2020 hindsight is that we have to recognize that international affairs, international safety, uh, national safety is is not equated to position educationally. I mean, right now, when we look at, you know, the, these international rankings that we become so obsessed with, one of the top ranking nations is Finland. Not really a country that we think of as a superpower. Right. Not really a country that we think of as being one that's going to be taken over by the, the bad guys at any time. Mm-hmm. We don't think about them as having an exceptionally strong economy. We don't think about them in any of those ways. Yet, their educational system, you know, based upon the way that we're doing comparison, right. is always at the top. Always ranked toward the top. Either at the top or toward the top. Right. Mm-hmm. So... We have to recognize that we need some separation. That there, there is a is a a very weak, if any, correlation between right. a very high educational system and an economic, international, you know, defense safety type of right. system. That those two things work separate from one another. Right. You know, clearly, our economy does well when our people are educated. Mm-hmm. But the way that we're measuring success in education now may not be exactly the type of way we need to be thinking about education as it relates to those kinds of outcomes, the, the good economic types of outcome. That's right. When we look back at the 1980s when this came out, I think you know some people have, have mentioned these things before, and it, but it warrants repetition, is that... 
in the 1980s, when we think about the innovations that came out of the 1980s, when we think about those who were educated in the 70s and 80s, those that a nation at risk were talking about, when we think about the innovations that came from that time, we're talking about the mapping of the genome project. We're talking about some of our biggest space explorations that happened uh, in, in, in our history. Uh, this here. came from people who were educated during that time when we were supposedly at risk and, and failing our students. That's right. Uh, all the advances in neuroscience that we talk about right. today, the decade of the brain was the 1990s. Right. So it was this group of people who were, who were making those um, innovations. Right. Pushing back those frontiers. Right. So, so again, recognizing that we're looking back with 2020 hindsight, perhaps it's prudent to consider the fact that maybe when we're looking at the situation at the time we're looking at it, we may be restricting ourselves in such a way that we're not seeing some of the important aspects of education that we should be looking at. Right. And the other thing, the other important questions that we have to ask, one of them is, were the school systems as bad as we perceived them to be? in 1985. And right. it, you know, it looked like they were failing. It looked like they were, for example, um, we're told that during this time, the, um, the uh, SAT score was declining. Right. Okay. Well, as when we went back and looked at those data, because everybody said, well, look, here's the proof. Um, here's the SAT score in 1975. And here's the SAT score in 1985. And the SAT score in 1985 is lower, okay? But then we did an analysis of all subgroups. And every subgroup that took the SAT, the score was either the same or higher. So subgroup scores were not changing or they were improving, but the total score was going down, which didn't make sense until somebody came discovered that the reason that was happening is that more low-income students were taking more minority and low income students were taking the SAT in 1985 than in 1975. So yes, the total score went down, but the score of each group was going up. And right. that can happen. I mean that happens. It's that happens. And so so the first question is did we need to be afraid? Did we need to be so afraid that we had to uh, completely renovate the entire educational system? And the problem the, the the answer to that is no, the system wasn't really as bad as a nation at risk said it was. The second question is, okay, you want to make everybody accountable. Right. Nobody has any problem with that. The question becomes, how do you make people accountable? And I think that's where we started to run into problems because what happened after 1985, when the first President Bush, um, when he became president, he had an education agenda that had had more specific goals for the federal government to play in education. In fact, right. it was called Goals 2000, and that uh, there were there were reforms that he wanted to put into place. Those reforms were eventually put into place during the Clinton administration, and the reforms that the first President Bush and President Clinton put into effect was the what one of the things that that both of those presidents did was to advocate high-stakes testing. One of the ways we'll measure and hold people accountable is we will test periodically to see how how students are doing and if teachers are effective or not. 
when the second President Bush comes into the White House and signs No Child Left Behind, there's a punitive consequences for falling short. Right. Uh, the, the idea with No Child Left Behind is that we were going to make all students proficient by 2014. And if schools didn't accomplish that goal, then we would there would be punitive consequences for those schools. And that is a major shift. So what what started as um, a call to action in 1985 um, was based on two faulty premises. One is the system wasn't as broken as the commission said. And the second thing is how do you measure student progress and how do you um, have a system of accountability? And I think that's where it started to go off the rails is um, number one, the system wasn't broken, and number two, how do you make it better? How right. do you improve it? And, and as we're looking at this, what we're talking about is two false assumptions. Right. The first was the assumption, as we were just saying, that the school system was as bad off as they said that it was. That, that was an assumption that, again, looking back, uh, we now know probably isn't the case. And we're gonna, we, we have some statistics that we'll talk about here in just a second to help demonstrate that. The other assumption is that we can assume accountability for a teacher based upon student performance. Right. We can assume we, we're making the assumption that a student is going to perform the very best that he can, and that by looking at that performance, we can then estimate how good of a job the teacher did. Right. And that is a really poor. I mean, it's a at, as we're thinking about it, even while it's still happening, we don't even need twenty twenty hindsight to look and say, that's probably not a very good assumption to make. Uh, any of you who own a business, any of you who, are, who teach, any of you who are in a situation where you're trying to get somebody else, if you're a parent, and you're trying to get your kids to do something that he or she may not be very interested in doing on their own, you know that many times it doesn't matter if you're doing a good job. It doesn't matter if you're working and doing everything exactly the way that you need to be do it, to need to be doing it. If your child doesn't want to do it or if your employee doesn't perform, that's on the employee. That's on the student. That's on your child. That doesn't have anything really to do with um, how good of a performance you're 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 making it. And and so this faulty assumption that a teacher has complete control and should therefore that that their performance is perfectly reflected in the child's um, or the student's performance on the school that that just doesn't make sense mm -hmm. there, there's nothing that makes sense about that assumption right. and, and we're but we're continuing to do it this hasn't stopped you know even today the idea is is that well, well we can measure the teacher's performance based upon the school students test scores as though that's real and we know it's not real and accurate right mm -hmm. and we know that it's not right. there's there are too many other factors at play yeah. to make that assumption but yet we're still punishing teachers we're punishing schools punishing administrators telling them that it's their fault because they're not working hard enough to, to get the students' test scores where they need to be. Mm -hmm. um, so the system of accountability doesn't take 
into consideration all of the other factors that need to be taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. That are contributing to the scores. Right. And the scores, okay. Um, that's right, because um, the first, you know, is it true that schools are as bad as they were? No, but even if they are, even if parts of our educational system were failing or were broken, we need to know what parts they are and how best to deal with those problems. Right. It wasn't the whole system that was wrong. Um, but if you if you begin with the assumption that the public schools are broken, then you have then you come up with solutions of well let's let let's have vouchers so that our kids can be taken out of public schools and put into private schools. Let's have charter schools. Let's have magnet schools. So the solutions we came up with were designed to fix one problem, that is that the total that the whole system was failing, when in fact the whole system wasn't failing. Were there problems in the system? Absolutely. Did we need to hold everybody accountable? Did we need to measure student progress to be sure that students, in fact, were reading? I think we talked about this in one of our other podcasts. One of the reasons we have high-stakes testing is that in the 1970s and 80s, parents began to sue school districts right. because you know kids were graduating, and parents were saying, wait a minute, my son's graduating, but he's reading at a second-grade reading level. Okay? Right. And they were filing... Um, lawsuits and school districts were having to pay large punitive damages because they were saying your child has a high school diploma when in fact the child was reading at an elementary school reading level. Right. So to um, to close that hole, to plug that hole, state said, well, let's start testing the kids early on and we can track their progress across time. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Let's right. track their progress. But let's be clear that there are still high school graduates who can't read. Absolutely. After 15 years of testing, we still have high school graduates reading at a second grade reading level. Right. So, so this problem wasn't fixed with using high-stakes high yeah. testing and, and accountability. But the intention was good. I mean, right. the, the, you know, to say, let's track their progress over time, I don't think anybody disagrees with tracking kids' progress over time. Right. The, the issue is, is that we're not collecting enough other variables. That's right. Let's, you know, let's take a, right. a, a very simple, basic example. Because as a parent, we hear this every time that there's a test. Students come home and say, my teacher said to make sure I get enough rest tonight and that I eat a good breakfast in the morning so I'll be ready and can attend and, and take the test. Mm -hmm. Every teacher says that to every classroom the day before testing. So if we use that as the basic example, what happens or, or what does it have to do with the teacher, how well the teacher is performing? If Susie goes home, doesn't get to sleep because her parents are arguing all night, so she doesn't get to sleep until 12.30 or 1 right. o'clock in the morning. Right. She wakes up 15 minutes before she's supposed to jump on the bus. Mm -hmm. She doesn't eat breakfast, and she arrives at school um, and has to take a test at 8.30 that morning, right. tired, Hungry, mm -hmm. frazzled, and inattentive. Parents are at home doing goodness knows what. You know? She wakes up in the morning and dad's not there because right. dad... Right. What does that have to do with the teacher? Right. Right. What does that have to do with... What does that have to do with Susie? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That those are variables that we're not collecting. Those are factors that we're not using in our, in our calculations mm -hmm. of student performance. Right. Right. We're leaving all those other factors out of the equation. Right. And we're, 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 we've set up a system that says if students do poorly on this test, it's because they're undereducated. That part's not true. 
it, it, it kids do poorly on tests for many reasons. Right. And if but if we if we accept the first premise that they're not learning, then it has to be somebody's fault. Right. Whose fault is it? The teacher. Okay. Because so the teacher's have, the easy target. That's right. Because the teacher's there. So you have two faulty assumptions that are driving this whole system. And the reason this is happening is because decisions, educational decisions, are no longer made by educators. Um, the um, uh, Goals 2000, um, many of these committees, uh, Common Core, right. okay, they're not made up of educators. They're made up of business CEOs. They're made up of governors. They're made up of elected officials. You might have an educator or two on the committee, but basically as a consultant, as a consultant. But basically, you have non-educators making educational decisions. Think about it. Think about if medical decisions were made by non-physicians. You know, let's just get a couple of CEOs in there to make decisions about uh, neuroimaging, which is why we get into the situation with insurance companies. Not that we're going to get into that with well, <laughs> in this podcast. Maybe we can take a quick turn to the left here. Yeah, but you know, the the issue is, and, and we know this. From doing the research that we've done um, and st- the statistics classes that we've right. taken, is there's this idea of multiple regression, and what multiple regression? And, and to put it very simply, multiple regression suggests that there are many factors that go into the outcome that you're looking right. at. There, repeat that: there are many factors that contribute to one outcome. Right, right. and that each factor carries a different weight right. with it as it relates to that eventual outcome. That's right. What we're doing right now is the outcome is teacher accountability, and the only factor that we're saying contributes to that is student test performance. Or we say the outcome is student performance, and the only contributing factor is the teacher. Right. So when we're we know that's not true. Right. So basically all we're saying is test scores equals accountability and that equal sign can go both ways we know that that's not true right we know that there are dozens of other factors that that's weigh right. in it and many times those other factors are heavier mm-hmm. weight or should be weighted more than teacher performance mm-hmm. so we're working from this delusional perspective that these two things equate to one another mm-hmm. and, and we all the research that we have, no, you know, points in the opposite direction. That it, it, it doesn't; these aren't the same thing. Mm-hmm. Teacher accountability and student test scores are not the same thing, right. despite the fact that that's how we're right. weighting them right now. We often, um, but two two other uh, side comments here. Um, one is that um, we um, we often say oh, we should be testing parents. You know, we, we should somehow have that. Right. Well, I'm sorry, you can't do that. It's right. impractical, so we don't test them. The only reason we're not testing parents is because we haven't, we can't do it. It's it's impossible to do it, so we don't do it. So, okay, let's forget about the parent contribution and let's just look at the teacher. Right. Okay. Because the teacher is the only one because that's they're there. available. Right. The kids are available. And the teachers are available. So that's who we test. Right. Simply because they're accessible. Right, right. And the, 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 another assumption that we make that I think contributes to this overall problem is the assumption of student motivation. Mm-hmm. We work from the idea, for whatever reason, I mean, there's probably a lot of maybe good reasons. For a lot of reasons, we assume that all students want to go to college. Mm-hmm. Now, again, 
we have to remember that by and large the reason that high schools were invented was to prepare students who wanted to go to college mm -hmm. now so we're working from this assumption that all students are motivated to complete high school so that they can therefore go to college once again we then set up all of these systems to assess with that in mind That's right. the idea that all oh, these students are going to be motivated to work hard because they have mm -hmm. to meet these standards that right. we're setting forth to say that they are prepared for college mm -hmm. again we know that this isn't the case this wasn't the case in the 1980s right. this isn't the case now That's right. you know the when they did the 25th 25 year anniversary of um, a nation at risk they looked at what happened to some of the students born in 1983 right. who entered school in 1987 or 1988. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. of, if we look at it statistically, 20 students in, in, that entered uh, elementary school in 1988, right. 14 of those students would graduate high school. That's right. Only 10, 50%, mm -hmm. would go to college. And of those that went to college, only five... Right. would graduate college within six years. Mm -hmm. Okay, Those statistics aren't very different than they are now. With all of this stuff that we're right. doing to our students, to, to our, our kids, and to our teachers, mm -hmm. our statistics isn't that much different. Only about 50 to 60 percent, or 50 to 60 percent of high school students do not go to college. That's right, and I think that that bears repeating. It deserves repeating. What we're saying is uh, a nation at risk written in 1984, published in 1984, was based on a statistic that said only 50% uh, of students graduate from high school, approximately 50%. That hasn't changed. Right. With, with, um, it's been 30 years of reforms, and those numbers have not changed. So whatever we're doing has not solved the problem. Right. Okay. Uh, we've created a few new ones, right. but we haven't solved the old ones. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and all of that stems from the idea that, that students are, are motivated, students are intrinsically motivated right. to perform well, and they're going to do, you know, they're going to sit in class for seven and a half hours, and they're going to pay attention, and they're going to write notes, and when they're going to get home, they're going to take um, all of their work that they've done, and they're going to study every night for two or three hours, and come fresh and ready and prepared for the next day, and exactly. do this day after day. And we know that it doesn't happen. Right. Right. There are pockets of students who, who do that. I, I have some students that I talk to who, you know, they leave school. Uh, they go right after school to the library and they sit in their study groups right. and they study for two or three hours. And they go home and eat dinner and then, then read over their material a little bit more before right. going to bed. There are pockets of students that do that. And those students do well. Those students go to high-ranking ranking colleges and... and, and well, approximately 5 out of 20 do that. Well, this would even be smaller than that. But it's probably smaller than 5 out of 20. Right, right. right. These are probably maybe one, maybe one, or a half right. of a student, uh, statistically, who, who perform at that level. That's right. But that's not anywhere close to the norm. Right. You know, and, and that, that brings us to this point of... When a nation at risk was, uh, one of the recommendations of a nation at risk was we have to have a more rigorous curriculum. Right. We have to, uh, kids can't take soft courses. They have to take math and science and history and they have to learn these subjects. And so one of the recommendations is 
we have to um, we have to ha we have to have a more rigorous curriculum so that everybody has to. So what they're saying is everybody has to take algebra, everybody has to take geometry, everybody has to take this. When in fact, most kids are not. That's a college preparatory curriculum. Right. Okay. Algebra and foreign language and all these courses that we typically associate with a rigorous high school curriculum, that's a college preparatory curriculum. Right. That's a one's... What we stepped into to with that recommendation was, um, though we say half the children are not graduating, we need a more rigorous curriculum. No, we don't need a more rigorous curriculum. We need a curriculum that meets the needs of the 50% who aren't going to go to college. Right. Let's keep the curriculum for those students who are going to go to college. Right. Keep a college prep curriculum. But what about the students? And the problem, the problem with these mandates that come from the federal government and state government is they try to develop systems that work for everybody. Nothing works for everybody in schools. Right. And, and, but, but that's what we're, we're trying to build these systems to say, we're going to test every student. You don't need to test every student, right? But that's what you get when you have these these um, mandates that come from the top down. Is you have a one size fits all, and that's what we've created. We have a one size fits all approach, and it's not working, right? Yeah, I, I was listening to a podcast the other day with a, a guy named Barry Schwartz, um, and he was talking yeah. about uh, standards without standardization. Uh, he was talking about the idea in medicine where you can't – every physician can't treat every patient exactly the same way. Right. That you have to have some standardization or you have to have some standards. But if you treat every patient that comes in in exactly the same way, then you're going to have problems. Right. When you think about a fever, well, there's – hundreds of reasons why a person can have a fever right. but if you treated every fever the same way if well you, you treat every fever as though it's the uh, a manifestation of an ear infection right so you give every patient with a fever amoxicillin right you're going to miss a lot you're going to potentially many of your patients are going right. to die if because somebody has meningitis right amoxicillin isn't going to do it right so Sure, you need to have standards. Sure, mm -hmm. you need to have a level of expectations that you right. you hope that your students meet. Right. But when you work from the perspective that you have to teach and manage every child, every patient, every person that you're working with mm -hmm. in exactly the same way, to assume that that's effective is naive. That's right. It, it's short-sighted, and it mm -hmm. doesn't take into account the variability that is the human experience. Mm -hmm. Teachers know this. Teachers know that every student in his or her classroom will not learn the same way. That's where we get the whole idea of differentiated instruction, where we get into the whole idea of developmentally appropriate education that adjusts and, and works to the needs of the individual students. You know, and what's what, what blows my mind, Richard, is that you know, you and I have worked in with curriculums before. Many of those traditional curricula have that understand that as well. 
you know, they present, they, they bring with you materials. Many schools have closets full of learning materials to help students who maybe are, you know, if we, if we want to use these simplistic terms, who are visual learners versus those who are auditory learners and kinesthetic learners. In the past, at least, curricula materials included those kinds of resources for teachers so that they can teach. Here, teach it this way um, today. Teach it, you know, then go, review it with this, right. these materials and then review it with this materials. And for some reason, we're getting away from that. Mm-hmm. We're not using that anymore. Right. And so we have this idea of common core where every student has to learn it at the same pace with the same materials in the same way. It doesn't, it doesn't fit with what we know about the human experience. It doesn't fit with what we know of children, child development, and learning. And when we talk about things being mandated from the top down, Common Core is a wonderful example of all that's wrong with education today. People complain about Common Core, um, but let's complain for the right reason, okay? It's not a communist plot, okay? Common Core is not a communist plot, but... Common Core is a curriculum developed by a committee of about 17 people from the Governor's Association. These are mainly politicians, okay, who met. It was also funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It was totally, all the money for developing Common Core was provided by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has an agenda. Their agenda is that education can be done better by private enterprise than by government agencies that we call schools. So the Gates Foundation has an agenda, um, which they're entitled to, um, but, the, but, but this group of individuals who developed Common Core, they weren't consulting with teachers and professional educators, they were consulting with other politicians. And then we say, everybody has to do Common Core. Once again, we have this one-size-fits-all approach because if you want to adopt it at a national level, you have to drop it on everybody in the same way because it has to be equal. The problem is with Common Core is not that it's a communist takeover. The problem with Common Core is that it mandates that every student will be in the same place in the curriculum every day across the country. Right. So if your child is in second grade in Nashville, Tennessee, they're going to be on the same skill as a kid in San Francisco, California on that same day. That's not how learning occurs. That's right. what you were just saying. That we have never in our history, well, we did early on, expect every child to be at the same place in the curriculum every day. It just doesn't happen. Right. Okay. Um, but that's what that's what Common Core is imposing on the entire country right now. Right. So it's not a political or a religious problem. It's an educational problem. Right. And and I think that when we when we try to make it those other problems, that's when we start to lose sight of what we really need to be talking about. And and that is we need our education system to be flexible to the needs of the students that we're serving. Right. We can't work from the perspective that all children learn the same way from the same materials. And if they're not, then it's either the teacher's fault or it's the kid's fault for not doing the work that they need to do. We know that that's not the case. We, I mean, there's too many, too much evidence to prove and demonstrate that that's not the case. And so for us to, you know, this is what we refer to as insanity, right? Doing the same thing but expecting a different outcome. That's, right. that's lunacy. Right. Right. But it's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. 
And it's what the what our politicians, as you said, continue to push. That's right. Because the educational reforms that we have today, beginning with the nation at risk, but especially during the first Bush and Clinton and second Bush administration and, and the Obama administration, are, are imposed from the top and they are imposed on everybody in the same way. Imagine for a moment... You have a child, you have a, you have a, a, a kindergarten student from, um, say, Fairfax County, Virginia, who has been to elite preschools and daycare centers. Parents are uh, highly educated, college, ed- university educated professionals. Both parents are professionals. Um, has gone to elite um, preschools and enters kindergarten. That student is gonna, going to be in a very different place in the curriculum than a child who grew up in rural Arkansas or Alabama or Mississippi or any other rural part of the country, Appalachia, Pennsylvania, it doesn't matter, who, whose parents are not college educated, they're high school dropouts. The child did not go to preschool, did not go, has no preschool experience and enters kindergarten. Does anybody, can you even begin to imagine that those two children are going to be in the same place in the kindergarten curriculum or that they're they're both going to end up in the same place at the end of their kindergarten year. It's absolutely impossible. But that's what Common Core says we have to do. Right. Is those two kids will be expected to be in the same place in the curriculum. And I, a lot of this, again, stems from the idea that we're going to approach education the way that we approach business. That's right. Now, in a business model, this makes sense. If you're working in a automobile factory... Every time you build a carburetor, you're going to build it the same way because that's the model that you're building it from. And the carburetor has nothing to say about it. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's materials. You're putting the materials together. It doesn't have free will. It doesn't have to eat. It doesn't have to sleep. You're just taking the pieces, putting them together to make the outcome. It makes sense in that type of business model. Right. It doesn't make sense. Children are not pieces of equipment. Children are not passive um, bystanders who just things happen to them and they don't act on the world around them. It doesn't work that way. And so when we, but when we try to apply those kinds of principles to an organic being that, that responds and behaves and, you know, it's not like, it's not even like children are dolphin, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) unfortunately we, you know, being, being, very um, conscientious of the way that, of course, sometimes dolphins and other animals are treated, you can deny a dolphin a meal to make that dolphin hungry so that dolphin will perform for you. Do whatever you want it to do. Right. Mm -hmm. It it will perform because, you know, everybody knows, and I I heard a, a friend of mine mention this the other day, you know, if you want a dog or an animal to perform for you, you keep it at about 80% of its ideal body weight, mm-hmm. and it will do whatever you need it to do for food. Right. You can't do that with kids. We'd like to, but we can't. We can't. Mm-hmm. We would get in trouble for child abuse. We would sure. get in trouble yeah, for yeah. lots of different reasons, nor would we want to. Mm-mm. No. So we we have to understand that it's a different system than a business model or, or the way that we can train other animals where, or other in other beings where we can completely control every aspect right. of its life. Mm-hmm. We can't do that with kids. Right. Teachers and, can't do that. Right. And, they, and the, I, I like the, the business model um, that you mentioned, manufacturing. Let, 
imagine for a moment that um, we have a factory and in year one um, part of the product is built then in year two a second part is built and then in year three something else is done to it and then in year four something else is done to it and it takes about five years of work to put this product together would you take the fifth worker and evaluate his work productivity based on what that looks like, what that product looks like at the end of the fifth year? No, because all these other people contributed to it. Right. Workers contributed in year one, and year two, year three, year four. Well, who gets the credit or the blame over that four-year Right. You know, should we should we just hold this the last person to touch it is held accountable? Right, and that's what we're doing in education. Yeah, if the first worker forgets Screwed to put up. in a particular screw in, it wasn't the fifth worker's fault. Right, right, but and yet the machine still won't work. That's right, and that's exactly what we're doing in education. We wouldn't dream of doing that in manufacturing. That's what we're doing in education. Right, the model doesn't, as you said, that that business manufacturing assembly model simply doesn't work in education. Right. It's a completely different process. And right. we're holding people accountable for something they have no control over. And that is unfair. Right. And that's what we're doing with teachers. So when we, when we step back and we look at our history of school reform, the way that it has evolved over time, you know, the previous mechanisms for school reform had a very specific mm-hmm. function, whether it was integration, integration, whether it was Americanization, right. uh, whatever those purposes, those goals were, it, w- mm-hmm. it was pretty clearly defined. They were, they were a little bit more concrete right. than what we're talking about now. And also, we weren't holding teachers accountable for integration. Right. We weren't holding teachers accountable for Americanization. Right. right. Unlike this system, which is holding teachers directly accountable for something that they can't control. Right, mm-hmm. right. So the, the, the system that we're working with now, the way that school reform is working now, is very different than the types of school reform that we've had in the past. Right. Yes, it is. The, the goals are different. The mechanism for measuring success is mm-hmm. different. The way that we're going about it is different. And for that reason, I think that it's important to consider the fact that this school, this type of school reform, the reform that we're going through right now, may be doomed for failure or may be doomed because the underlying motives are very different than what we're really thinking that they are. You know, there are those perhaps a little bit more conspiratorial people who believe that part of this whole system is to demonstrate that public schools don't work. And because they don't work, we need to go to more of a privatization of education. Um, you know, Those who want education, the government out of education, they, they believe that we shouldn't have a national department of education, that, we should, that that should be either state-based or, again, even private-based. Mm-hmm. Perhaps much of this is working in, the, in that direction, that, that right. slow process of getting the government completely out of education. And that in and of itself creates a new problem. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea of not having state or federally funded education system, that concerns me because then what students are not going to be educated? You know, right now we're in a situation where all children 
we'll be educated. Well, as soon as we take the government out of that, what? who's to say that every child should be educated? Right. Who's to say that there's not going to be an education provided to the, some of the students that you were talking about, some rural students, um, students in, in urban uh, inner city uh, locations who, if they didn't have to go to school, their parents may not send them. Mm-hmm. And so if we take completely take the government out of education, what consequences is that going to have for us and for our future? That's right. Because even if you have private companies, everybody says, well, private companies, like, uh, what is that one, TAP? Right. T-A-P-P? Mm-hmm. Um, even, if, even, if you, uh, even if you believe the argument that private education, for-profit education companies do a better job, Okay, let's accept that for a moment, that they do a better job than public schools. As soon as the federal government says, yes, we will, we will do away with all government schools, they're still going to have to say, whoever takes these children has to make sure that they're educated. Right. Okay? Right. Once you say that, then the... the for-profit companies' hands are going to be tied just as public schools are. Right. Because right now, the for-profit and private schools are not obligated to provide an education for everybody. Right. They're not under some mandate, some government uh, mandate that they have to provide. We have a 0%. We have universal education in our country. We have a 0% rejection rate. You're not allowed to deny a child an education. Okay. And, and never have we, until No Child Left Behind, we've never said, it's okay to educate these children, and these children don't matter. We can work as hard as we can, but if they don't get it, they don't get it. Okay, That's what we've created. We've talked about the two-tiered school system. But as soon as somebody mandates that everybody has to be educated, we're back to the same problem. Whether right. it's a private school, a charter school, what if private schools had to educate every kid, no matter who the child was? Right. But they don't have to, because only... Children who are succeeding get to stay there. Right. right? Um, but, but if you said to all private schools, you can't throw kids out. If you said to magnet schools, charter schools, private schools, you can't get rid of students because they're underperforming, you're back to the public school system. And you can't reject a student because they can't pay. That's right. That's right. You know, mm-hmm. that, that creates it's a free, completely appropriate different... appropriate public education. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I worry that this new round of school reform is working from the delusion that that's where we should be. That's where we should be going. Right. Because if, if it is, then we are we're looking at a very dim future. I mean, does anybody really believe that just because you have vouchers or private schools or charter schools or for-profit schools that you're not going to have students who are unmotivated, undermotivated, unable to learn – not attending school, whose parents are not supportive. Does anybody? Do you think those students are going to go away because you're a private, for-profit schools? Richard, how many how many kids do we talk to? Parents do we talk to where the parents are paying twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a year for private school, and the kid just won't do their homework? <laughs> right. Or, or, They're already paying a thousand dollars a month. Right. Mm-hmm. Or or the or the kids are in these elite charter and magnet schools. Right. And they're not doing their projects, or their parents are still doing the projects for them. Right. You know, right. I mean, it, again, it, it's it's. I keep using the word delusional because it, you know, it's almost 
it is delusional to believe that simply by creating these expectations is going to automatically make students work harder, right. do what they're supposed to do, and it just doesn't the work. problem students are going to go away. How many, how many times have you and I talked about the 20%? Right. Okay, 80% of students are going to do okay. You know, mm-hmm. Some are going to get A's, some are going to get C's, but they're going to do okay. But 20% are not. Those 20% aren't going anywhere. Right. So we either figure out a way to educate those 20%, whether they want to be or not, or we forget about them and just focus on the 80%. This, all these problems would go away if we got rid of the 20%. Well, they're not going to go anywhere no matter what the schools look like. Well, and, and unfortunately, the, the, the realistic issue is, is that even if you got rid of the 20% in some way, there'll be a new 20% because okay. what we'll say is, well, look at all these guys. They're doing so well. Let's raise the expectations That's... a little bit. And then as soon as we raise the expectations a little bit, a new 20% is going to be created We're because now those won't be able to do it. When this first came out, uh, there was a group of school psychologists who said, there's always going to be a lower 25%. Always. It doesn't matter. We're not going to have all A's across the United States. Right. We're always going to have a lower 25%. All children. Harvard has a lower twenty-five percent. All third graders will not be reading at a third-grade level. Right. That's is statistically impossible right. for that to happen. But well, yeah, it means that we no longer believe in reading disabilities. We've believed in them for a hundred years, but now we don't believe in them anymore. Right. Right. And, and yeah, it's so it's 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 frustrating. It's idealized. It's you know, would it be great? If every kid could do that, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Do, should that be a goal? Perhaps. But should we limit, hold back resources, um, make um, Policy. policies and, and uh, resources contingent upon meeting that goal? No, that, that's, that's silliness. Right. Uh, but yet it's, it's what we do and, and how we're functioning at this time. So mm-hmm. we're encouraging you to to take a look at this, to just consider it, think about it a little bit. Does it make sense that this is what we're expecting? Does it make sense the direction that school reform is going in right now? If it doesn't, if you're like us and it doesn't make sense, let's talk about it. Let's continue to have our voices be heard because that's how change is going to happen. When we go to the voting booths in in the next year, and we're making decisions about who who our elected officials are going to be. Let's remember that just because our polit- our elected politician went to um, law school, because most of them are lawyers, just because they went to law school doesn't mean that they understand education. Doesn't mean that they understand child development and and the way that the human brain learns information. You know, I've talked to many very intelligent people who really have no idea how the process of learning happens um, and why you can't just sit down and learn a foreign language. Why, you know, what do you mean? I can do it. Why can't anybody else do it? I well, did it. Everybody can. Right. So we need to be talking about this. We need to be reading about this. We need to continue to do research on this. And we need to make sure that we're electing people who take these thoughts and these ideas into consideration instead of just blindly saying, yep, we want all of our students to meet this, to, you know, to be able to jump this high, and so we'll just set it that high. Right. Somebody said, um, I, I heard somebody make the uh, analogy, you know, we set a, a, a jumping bar at, at four feet, and 
Some students can jump over the four feet and some can't. So what we do is we then move it to six foot. Mm-hmm. Um, because if we move it to six foot, well, that will get them to at least be able to jump to four foot. No, <laughs> it, it right. doesn't work that way. That's right. not how we as humans learn. That's not how we process information. So just setting the bar higher doesn't mean that you're going to work harder. What it means is you're not going to try. Right. And that's and we, what we really and, see. And we want to encourage parents. You know, you say, well, what can we do about it? Number one, I would reject, first of all, we have to de-emphasize testing. And fortunately, that's beginning to happen around right. the country. It's even happening in Texas. And if it happens in Texas, surely it can happen in Florida. Um, so testing should be de-emphasized. Right. There should be less of it. There should be less importance. There should be less focus. We need to get rid of high-stakes testing. Number two, I would reject any policy that evaluates teacher effectiveness based on student test performance. The, Dr. Bernie used the, word, the, the term multiple regression. We have to remember that there are many factors that contribute to a student's test score. A teacher is only one of those factors. Right. Um, and there are many teachers who contributed to a child's education, not one teacher. And so um, it, this is especially true as they get older. But any, anybody, any system that advocates that we should evaluate teachers based on students' test scores must be rejected, and we have to fight against that. That's muddle-headed, ineffective policy, and we just can't tolerate it. Yeah, and, and, and again, that, that comes from when we hit those voting booths. You know, when, right. when, when we're looking at our officials, we have to demand from, we have to demand mm-hmm. better from them. Mm-hmm. We have to demand that they look at the research and accept the science that says mm-hmm. this isn't how this works. Right. Um, you know, I, we encourage you to, you know, look at the opt-out program or mm-hmm. the opt-out movement and in the, in the different ideas that are right. presented there because they have a uh, a lot of wonderful ideas and strategies that parents can use to do just what you're saying to, you know, reject some of these ideas that mm-hmm. support or, or foster this ongoing delusion that, you know, we can just, you know, if we just test enough, then we're going to get to where we're going. Yeah. Um, so, so we encourage you to look at the opt-out programs and, and movements. And when Dr. Bernie talks about we're going to the voting booth, Anytime you hear a politician say we have to cut taxes, please remember that the taxes that are going to get cut are the ones that fund our schools. Right. So if you want to cut taxes, that's fine. But please remember that you're cutting fire, police, and education. Right. The reason our schools are underfunded is because we don't raise enough money to pay for them. Right. And that's true throughout the South. Okay. Right. And other parts of the country. But it's especially true in the South. We have some of the lowest per pupil student expenditures in the country. That's an abomination. Don't cut taxes because cutting taxes cuts education funding. Right, right. And, and, that's, my soapbox. and that's hard to hear. It's, it's hard to talk about that. But it's true. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's absolutely fact right. that that's where the money's cut are cut first. And, sure. and, and they're often referred to and, and kind of clumped together with um, the entitlements. Yeah. Um, wasteful government programs. Right. You know? Education's right. not a wasteful government program. Right. right. And, and, and again, even if it were, 
and we move in this direction of privatizing education, where is that going to leave us? It's going to, con- it's going to put us back in a situation where some are educated and others are not. Right. Um, or it's going to create a situation where the government is going to have to have a hand in mm-hmm. private enterprises mm-hmm. by saying, no, even though you're a private educational institution, you have to educate every student. Right. You know, we can't have it both ways. That's right. We can't say the government has to be completely out of it um, because then students aren't going to get educated. Right. But we also can't say this government has to control everything because right. then we're making policies that don't make sense from an educational and learning perspective. There That's has right. to be a balance. Mm-hmm. And so, again, that comes from our voice, us talking about it, us holding our politicians to an expectation Mm -hmm. that they need to meet, holding them accountable Mm -hmm. for what we know the science says and what our educational research suggests is important. So, Mm -hmm. um, Oh, don't get me started. We could go for another little while about that stuff. We could. We we have to do this again. I have a a wonderful um, uh, article written by my... Uh, my my hero Diane Ravitch about the current hoaxes H O A X E S involved in educational reform. I want to. We have to do a podcast about those hoaxes sometime. Sure, it's really it'll be really fascinating to hear uh, a real professional discuss all of these issues. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we'll do that so next week. We'll do it again. Yeah. So um, we'll keep talking about this, but please let us know that. Tell them how they can get in touch with us. Lots of different ways, many different ways. Yeah, but we, we want to hear from you. So we have our Facebook page. It's the Paidea Facebook mm-hmm. page. So just P-A-E-D-E-I-A on Facebook. We also are on Twitter. We post a lot of things on Twitter under uh, my at uh, Dr. Bernie, D-R-B-E-R-N-E-Y, uh, Twitter account. Um, we have our blog. Uh, we put a lot of education stuff in our Mental Breakdown blog, so go to thementalbreakdown.com. You can see lots of information there. Um, we are also doing things on the Mental Breakdown Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash thementalbreakdown. So there's lots of different ways that you can reach yeah. us. You can listen to always listen to the podcast live on Mixler, M-I-X-L-R dot com backslash Paedia, P-A-E-D-E-I-A. Uh, finally, if you're listening to this, you're probably listening to it either through our blog or through iTunes, but you can reach, you can find both of our podcasts, the Paedia podcast as well as the Mental Breakdown podcast on iTunes. We usually do both of them at least once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, we're talking about doing a few other things and trying to expand it a little bit. But finally... The last way that you can reach us, and we're, we're beefing this up a little bit, is we're trying to put all of our podcasts uh, and videos on YouTube. Yeah. Because uh, a lot of people don't, you know, we, we kind of work from the assumption that a lot of people have access to iTunes, but that's just not the case. So we're going to be putting the audio on our YouTube account, uh, the, the Mental Breakdown YouTube account. Everything should be there. Uh, kind of toying with the idea of starting a Paydia YouTube account, mm-hmm. but we're kind of keeping everything together for now. Uh, see how that goes, and then we'll kind of build from there. So, lots of ways to get in touch with us. Yes, let us hear from you. Uh, these educational reforms are going to be um, stirred up over the next year, especially with an election, uh, but they're going to continue because we have to undo some of the reforms that have been done. 
So uh, please stay involved and please stay in touch. Yeah, Dr. Richard and I, we're both available if there's any schools or PTAs or PTOs that'd like for us to come and do a talk, uh, maybe help with a discussion uh, about these issues or any issues related to education. We you know, we're, we don't just talk about school reform. Right. We talk about uh, educational and behavioral interventions and things that happen in the classroom. We, we help and try to work with a lot of teachers and parents to just to help students perform the best that they can in, in school, um, improve their self-esteem and their confidence and their educational attainment. Uh, so we, we do a lot of different things, and we're always available for workshops and, um, and talks. Mm-hmm. So. All right. Is that it? That should do it for all, today. All right. So um, enjoyed it. It was great talking with you, and we hope that you come back and listen to us next time. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Paydia Education Podcast. We are so glad that you found us and that you're taking part in this. We want to create a forum for everybody to be able to talk about these issues and talk about our education system. But to increase our numbers, we ask that you jump onto iTunes and write a review or at least rate us so that we can increase our visibility so that other people can find us and join in on the conversation. You can also follow us on Facebook. Uh, Paydia has its own Facebook page. Uh, And you can follow us on Twitter, at Dr. Bernie is our handle. So follow us. And we will be posting lots of information, lots of new research, lots of new articles and columns and all kinds of information for you to stay part of what's happening. So thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you next time.